Welcome to the Left and Lefter podcast with your hosts, Vince LaMartina and Dean Vergara. This is the Left and Lefter podcast, where we discuss the current news and events from the ideological perspectives of a moderate Democrat and a Democratic Socialist. I am your host, Vince LaMartina, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dean Vergara. We are back again with another episode. It has been what feels like forever, but I think it's only been about 14 days since our last episode. But we're happy to be back together again talking about politics. Dean, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm glad to be back. Uh, glad to, to be back with you, Vincent. It's always a pleasure. I am happy to be back as well. I, I think a lot has happened since we last recorded, especially in this political environment where it feels like every day there is something newsworthy dropping. So a lot has happened and there's a lot to discuss together. Before we get started, don't forget you can support the Left and Lefter podcast directly by purchasing merchandise on our website. Go to leftandlefter.com slash shop. To get your Biden-Harris 2020 merchandise, we have exclusive Biden-Harris merchandise that you can only find on our website. So go to leftandlefter.com backslash shop. That's leftandlefter.com slash shop. Now let's go ahead and get started with our first segment of this episode, Reacting to the News, where we react to our news story of the week, our good news story of the week, and we nominate our Dumbo of the week. Our news story of the week is that the World Meteorological Association says that 2020 is set to close out the hottest five-year period in history. The average global temperature for the last five years was a record 1.1 degrees Celsius above industrial temperatures. Dean, scientists warned that we need to keep our planet from warming more than 1.5 degrees Celsius in order to avoid catastrophic damage. But obviously, based on this new report, we are nowhere near meeting that goal. What is your reaction to this new report from the WMA? Yeah, so Vince, um, you know, Quite frankly, my reaction to the story um, is of, of anger, um, as it should be for most, for most Americans and most citizens around the world, uh, that the most powerful country in the world, the most wealthy country in the history of the world, um, is doing absolutely nothing to curb the effects of climate change. And what this news article outlines is that even with our decreased uh, energy consumption during COVID-19 and the pandemic, it's still not enough. It's still not enough to ensure that future generations will have a planet that can somewhat resemble the one that we have been able to, to, to enjoy for, for so long. Um, and, and what makes me equally uh, upset about all this is that our president and the Republican Party has been hell-bent on removing the United States of America from the Paris Climate Accords. And even though those accords would not be enough to ensure that climate change wouldn't forever change the face of our planet. Um, it, was, it was a good first step and it was a necessary step. It was a necessary step because it was, for the, it was the first time 
you had all of the major countries around the world coming together and saying, okay, this is what we have to do. There's a certain standard we have to meet to ensure that the effects of climate change are mitigated as, as much as they possibly can be. And you know what? This president did keep his campaign promise. Um, so when you look at all these things together and our inaction, our inability to meet this moment, because such a large percentage of our country believe that climate change is a hoax. And I don't know what evidence, what proof we can show them that will convince them otherwise. And then, you know, just to get back to the article specifically, um, what was eye-opening, at least to me, was the fact that, I mean, it's just not something I really thought about, how our climate scientists in the current environment are unable to monitor the effects of climate change because 85% of the monitoring is done uh, via planes. And, and those have, I think it, it said it's down uh, 90%, uh, if I'm correct. So not only were we in an awful situation before COVID-19, our top scientists around the world right now are unable to, to adequately monitor where we are right now. And our president, you know, again, I hate to bring it all, you know, bring it back to Trump, but I mean, how can we not? How can we not bring it back to Trump and this election? How you have one person who is trying to convince you that climate change is not real. And then you do have another person uh, by the name of Joe Biden, who at least he believes in climate change. And I do have some issues with his, um, with his policies, especially pertaining to fracking. Um, but at least he thinks climate change is a real thing. But it's just, you know, it, it just every single time I read an article about climate change, it just pisses me off. Yeah, it's tough when you read articles like this and just know how dire the situation is and yet how little Americans really seem to care. If you look at public opinion polling, only 61% of Americans are even concerned about climate change. Uh, and that tends to be about 30 to 20% lower than most other countries. And sadly, of that 61%, only 41% believe it could actually impact them. And if we know anything about how Americans tend to vote and tend to care about things, they only care about things when it directly impacts them. So like you said, Dean, as the world leader, the most powerful country in the world, to not be even part of the Paris Climate Change Agreement is inexcusable. And the lack of concern among people, especially in this country, is borderline pathetic. We are the second largest emitter of emissions right behind China. And for us to not be the leader in this mission to stop global climate change from occurring is unfathomable. I mean, look who we're, look who we're surrounding ourselves with. The only countries that have not ratified the Paris Climate Agreement is us, Iran, Turkey, Iraq. It's basically us and the 10 oil nations. We're the only ones who seem not to care and not to believe this is the real deal. 
So it really kind of shows you the grave situation that we're in. And one of the things in this article specifically that I was kind of taken back about was the fact that it seems that during COVID-19, the pandemic and the global shutdown that happened because of the pandemic, even with less people driving, less people flying, it wasn't enough to really do anything. I think what that shows me is that, like you said, the, the Paris Climate Agreement is a great first step. But we have to change a lot more than just that. If we're going to truly stop this and if we're going to truly stop the planet from warming, we have to change our lifestyles. It has to be more than just, hey, let's go to electric one day. Hey, let's, you know, screw in a couple light bulbs here and there. It's going to take a lot more action than that. But the problem is we're not even at the first step. Yeah. And, and also what the problem is, is that you have uh, the Republican Party um, and the oil lobby and the fracking lobby and the coal mining lobby uh, convincing Americans that by fighting climate change, we will be destroying our economy in the process. And that is just a complete lie. Just, you know, think about the Green New Deal. Uh, think about all the jobs that would be created. The Green New Deal outlines specifically that we would be replacing lead pipes, weatherizing homes, expanding railways, manufacturing wind turbines. These are all jobs that so many of our Americans have lost in this country. Hard, hard jobs, but dignified jobs, manufacturing jobs, jobs that will allow them to support their families. And instead they just keep scapegoating immigrants and individuals who don't look like them. And, and, and that is what is also upsetting about all of this, is, that, is that, that they're believing it. They're believing that, whether it be the Green New Deal or other type of um, alternatives in order to try to, to fight climate change, will destroy our economy, but the opposite is, is the case. There's a reason why China is investing billions of dollars in green jobs, because this is the future. So we're going to be stuck with coal and we're going to be stuck with natural gas while the rest of the world is using rene renewable energy. And where does that leave us? And I think that's the key long term for us trying to get this country on the right path is you have to make that economic pitch. And it really shouldn't have to be that way. But that's the reality until you're able to get people to understand that either we're going to be part of the past or we're going to be part of the future. And, and do you want to be left behind? That's the only way I can see that we'll get enough Americans truly bought in to fight climate change. Because right now, even if 61% agree that climate change exists, which is very low compared to other countries, they just seem not to care because it does not, in their opinion, impact them directly right now. And that unfortunately means that it's an issue for most Americans that, yeah, they'll talk about it. But in reality, they don't want to do anything about it. It, they don't want any possible inconvenience to affect them. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's definitely part of it. Um, but I, I, I just think we can't ignore the fact that you have multi-billion dollar industries constantly bombarding the American working class with this narrative that 
fighting climate change will destroy our economy. Um, other countries have people that are self-interested, right? I, I just think that's human nature. What our Western allies don't have is a constant, again, bombardment of, of lies and fallacies and mistruths uh, thrown at them by corporate lobbies and, and the same corporate lobbies that you know, they they support politicians that enact laws that support them. And, and it's just this endless cycle that never ends. Um, I agree. And I think that's part of the problem. But I also think some of it lies with us as the American people. As a society, we love to talk about issues. And you can name other issues that are popular to talk about that we all can agree are major problems. But Besides posting something on Instagram or maybe sending a tweet on social media, that's the level of engagement that we're really willing to commit to it. Look at the fact that 94% of Americans support the idea of recycling. You know, it's something we all agree with, right? 74% of Americans believe it should be a top priority. Less than 35% of Americans actually do it. And that right there is yeah. the issue that we have. I hear you. I guess, I guess what I'm, I'm, you know, I don't really think there's any argument here. I think we're just um, looking at looking at the issue from from two perspectives. Um, but you know, it is going to take. It is going to take, gonna take uh, and you and you alluded to this in the beginning. It's going to take a real structural change in how we think and operate as Americans, what we think our economy should be, um, what's fair and what's unfair. These concepts, all, although they're, they're vague and they sound theoretical, they have lasting real world effects because unless we are able as a country to reassess what success means, how little or how much we're willing to tax our billionaire class and corporations in order to, to have the funds to, to, um, to fund the Green New Deal. All of these things are interconnected. Um, and while I hear what you're saying that, you know, and, and I'm guilty of it too, right? Like we could all, we all say, oh yeah, I believe in this, I believe in that. And then uh, do I really want to make that decision because it's a little bit more inconvenient. So you're right. We all have to reevaluate our impact and our impact on the environment. But unless those major political structures don't change, it doesn't matter what you and I do until we fundamentally change how our economy operates and what it means to be successful in this country. Nothing is gonna change because the, the truth is we do need to raise taxes in order to fund the Green New Deal. Corporate America will have to pay its fair share. And there's a reason why they're fighting against it. I hear what you're saying and, and don't get me wrong, I support the Green New Deal, but my argument to that would even be the Green New Deal is not enough. That's great for us. And, and yeah, we're 
the second biggest emitter of greenhouse gases, but it needs to be a global effort. It can't just be us doing the Green New Deal. That's not going to solve this problem. And that's kind of what scares me when I look at a report like this, because Green New Deal aside, we can't get our citizens to properly recycle, doing even just the basics. And we both admit that it's going to take a lot of work for us to get there as a country and to be bought in. But the problem is, there's not a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. You know, the only thing I'll I'll say to that is, is you're right. It's not enough. The Green New Deal in America is not enough, but we have to do something. Um, and we still are the leader of the free world. Um, and by us making such a major commitment, hopefully, and this may be naive, um, it will wake up the rest of the countries that are, are, are lagging behind. Because right now, all these other countries, especially in the developing world, they can point directly at us and say, why should we do that? Why should we make those changes if the United States of America is not? So we first need to fix what's, what's wrong with us. And hopefully we could do that um, soon enough uh, before it's too late. Well, Dean, after that discussion, I think we definitely need some good news. And our good news story of the week is billionaire Mike Bloomberg has pledged at least $100 million to help Democratic nominee Joe Biden's presidential campaign in Florida. Dean, with polls tightening in Florida and early voting starting September 24th, do you think Mike Bloomberg's cash infusion will be enough to get Joe Biden across the finish line in Florida? <laughs> um. So this is the good news story of the week. Uh, so I'm going to be as positive as I possibly can be when it pertains to Mr. Bloomberg. Um, listen, I'll take his money. We're both Floridians. We understand uh, how important it is, especially in this state, uh, to not only raise a lot of money, but spend a lot of money. Florida is one of the most expensive, if not the most expensive state to run a political campaign, uh, just given uh, the geographic diversity uh, of the state. Um, so yes, it is good news. I welcome Michael Bloomberg's um, $100 million. Uh, so the reason why I'm I'm trying not to laugh. Uh, and I'm trying to just think positively, but I just have to say it. Like, where where has he been? I mean, after he dropped out, uh, let me rephrase this. After Elizabeth Warren demolished him in that debate and ruined his political career for as as for as um as far as I'm concerned. Um, he did say he would spend whatever it would take to nominate the Democratic nominee. He promised. Have, have any checks been cashed? Uh, I think not. 
So the reason why I bring this up is that there, there is a key word in the, in the news article. And I texted Vince, you know, when he sent it to me. And that key word is plan. He plans to spend $100 million of $100 million in Florida. So I'll believe it when I see it. Um, I'll welcome the, uh, the ads that we can now run uh, nonstop in Florida, if that's the case. Um, and then to your initial question, will it make a difference? I mean, it, it, it can, right? Like, like I said in the beginning, Florida is an extremely expensive state to run a campaign in. Um, so it's welcomed. Um, but I'm just, I'm uneasy to put any real trust into anything Michael Bloomberg says. And I know, again, this is good news. So let me get, let me, I'm going to bring it, I'm going to send it back over to Vince. <laughs> I think he'll be better able to, to keep this positive. Um, so what are your thoughts on this, Vincent? Dean, I, I understand your hesitancy when it comes to Mayor Bloomberg's commitment to spend money for other people. Now, that being said, I think it is worth noting that in 2018, during the midterms, Mr. Bloomberg supported a lot of candidates and causes and he put his money where his mouth was and he spent the money and he did what he had to do and he helped us win a lot of races. However, there has been a growing cry, even among moderates, but especially on people on the left of our party that Bloomberg promised this, he promised he was gonna do it. And once again, this is him not following through with his commitment to help the Democrats. So I understand people's hesitancy to take him at his word when he makes a commitment like this, but when you look at the press release that he released, it seems to be done with the Biden campaign. So there seems to be a lot of communication about how this is going to be done that has already been handled. I believe that he is going to come through with the money. And I think it is really needed. When you look at Florida, Dean already mentioned this, but it is a very expensive state to run a campaign. Additionally, one of the things that Joe Biden is going to have to find a way to overcome, and he has done it throughout this whole election is the fact that he doesn't have much of a ground game in any state. That's one thing that has been criticized pretty heavily of him is that they have not, they have yet to invest as much money as the Trump campaign is and building an actual infrastructure in these battleground states to get people out to vote. Now that's not to say that they don't have a plan because they do. I just think that their plans may be a little bit different than the typical path taken by candidates. It seems the Biden campaign is going with much more of a digital approach, much more of a virtual approach. And I'm sure COVID and the pandemic has a lot to do with that. But I think when you look at Florida as a state, it is very expensive. And let's be honest, the demographics in Florida aren't great for Democrats. 2018 was a banner midterm for Democrats across the country in everywhere except for Florida. It is a tough state for Democrats to compete in. I think people misjudge Florida. I think they look at the number of minority voters in the state and they feel that Florida should be easy for Democrats to be able to win if they can just simply rally their base. But it's not that simple. Though Florida does have a large Latino population, that Latino population is very different. It consists largely of Cuban voters, which tend to be much more conservative. Additionally, Trump has done a great job of 
energizing that panhandle in Florida, which might as well be Alabama. It is his base. It is where he gets his votes. And he has energized that group of people to come to the polls. So I think for the Democrats, when you look at the state of Florida, and this is what I think the Biden campaign is looking at, is the old is the old path of winning going to work anymore? And I think the Biden campaign has concluded it's not. I don't think that you can just run the score up in Miami-Dade, run the score up in Broward. And for people who are unfamiliar with Florida, that means the Miami, Fort Lauderdale, Southeast Florida region, that we can run the score up there and it's going to be enough to counter the rest of the state. That's not there anymore. You can't just win doing that. And if you don't believe me, go ask Andrew Gillum. He had a great campaign. He did everything he could to mobilize the Democratic base in Broward and Miami-Dade. It was not enough. So I think for the Democrats to win, for Joe Biden to win the state of Florida, he's going to have to spend a lot of money. And he's not going to only have to worry about getting the vote out. He's going to have to try to get new voters. Yeah, you know, and that's why it is good news, Vince. It is is good news when a multi-billionaire decides to uh, make a nice donation to one of our candidates. And I know I said I'd keep it positive, but I just really can't help myself. Michael Bloomberg is worth $55 billion. He's promising $100 million. Do you know what percentage of his net worth $100 million is? Do you? Not very high. Yeah, it's it's 0.2%. So just to put this in perspective, I don't know what Vince makes it a year. Probably a it lot. is less than $100 million, by the way, if anyone's wondering. <laughs> well, let's just say for, you know, to make it uh, easy on my math abilities, which are not very good. Let's say Vincent makes $50,000 a year. 0.2% of $50,000 is $100. So Michael Bloomberg promising $100 million to Joe Biden in Florida would be like Vincent donating $100 to Joseph Biden if he were making $50,000 a year. So I'm not overly impressed by this gesture. Um, I do think it also points to a, a greater problem that we've discussed previously in terms of billionaires using charity and donations to qualm the concerns of the average American uh, regarding their insane amounts of wealth. But I digress. Again, this is good news. I accept the money. Thank you, Michael Bloomberg. I just had to say it. Dean, I agree. I mean, there's no doubt I wish Mayor Bloomberg would have considered donating more. In his defense, you quoted him as having $55 billion. I believe after this last election season, he's now down to 54 because he did spend $1 billion of his own okay. money on his failed campaign. So, you know, let's cut him a little bit of a break. But yes, I wish he would give more money. But that being said, let's take what we can get. It's still $100 million in one of the most important states. It is not a must win for Joe Biden. Joe Biden does not need to win Florida to win this election. And that's probably not even plan A for him, if we're going to be honest about it. When we look at at the Biden path to victory, the, the 270 electoral votes needed to become president, it's probably not his path A. But I will say this. I think the reason Mike Bloomberg and the Biden campaign said Florida is the state we should do it is because there is no path for Donald Trump if he does not win Florida. 
That's, we know that. Donald Trump cannot find the math to get him there. He could even have Andrew Yang. It's not going to make a difference. The math is not there. And who knows? I mean, Mike Bloomberg's a businessman, and I'm sure as we get closer to the election, if he thinks there's a need for more money, I'm sure he'll give more. I don't think he wants his $100 million to go to waste. If he thinks that there is a huge need, and as the state continues to tighten, the need becomes more evident, he's going to continue to donate and give more money to the cause. I have no doubt in that. He doesn't like to lose. People in his position aren't, don't get where they are losing a lot, unless you're Donald Trump. Um, yeah. Well, I'm waiting very patiently for his for his next $100 donation. Well, and don't forget, you don't have to be a billionaire to help support Joe Biden. Anyone listening to this podcast can go to JoeBiden.com and donate anything, even 0.2% of what you make per year to the Biden campaign. And we are at the home stretch right now. So I do encourage everyone, go give your 0.2% like Mike Bloomberg and donate to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris at JoeBiden.com. Now that brings us to this week's Dumbo of the Week. This week's Dumbo of the Week is Fox Sports' Skip Bayless. Last week on Undisputed, Skip Bayless had this to say about mental health and the Dallas Cowboys star quarterback, Dak Prescott. You know this as well as I, better than I do. It's the ultimate leadership position in sports. Am I right about that? Mm -hmm. And they're all looking to you to be their CEO, to be in charge of the football team. Because of all that, I don't have sympathy for him going public with, I got depressed. I suffered depression early in COVID to the point that I couldn't even go work out. Look, he's the quarterback of America's team. Dean Bellis's comments come after Dallas Cowboys quarterback, Dak Prescott, made a public statement about his mental health battle following the suicide of his brother in April. Dean, what is your reaction to Bellis's comments, which has pretty much been panned by everyone as both callous and just disgusting? That's, I mean, that's what it is, Vince. It's, um, it is disgusting. Um, it's disgusting that someone who has a major platform across social media um, and on for Fox and on Fox Sports One channel, I believe it's called. Uh, would not only believe something like that, but would be so willing to publicly say it. Um, and I just want to give my thoughts on why I think it's disgusting. Um, you know, first of all, he is, he obviously does not understand mental illness, doesn't understand depression doesn't understand how it could be physically debilitating. Um, but you know what? A lot of people don't know that uh, personally, but we empathize. We empathize with people that, that do battle with depression, um, which is a medical condition. And we empathize. Um, and here he is showing a complete inability to empathize with someone who in a time where it's so popular to just be and, and show how tough you are 
and your bravado in this in this time in this political climate in Dallas, Texas, to come out and say, you know what, this is what happened to me. This is how I was affected. This is how I was affected by the suicide of my brother, which followed the death of my mother. And he is, is doing something that we've been asking our athletes and our public figures to do for so long, and that's to raise awareness about mental illness and depression and anxiety and bipolar disorder. All of these things that affect so many people in this country. And for Skip Bayless to, to say, oh, this is a dog-eat-dog -dog league and, you know, you have to be tough. You have to be tough. Well, you know what? To me, it is tough. It does show toughness. It does show toughness to show vulnerability, especially nowadays. And that's what he did. And think about all the other young boys and girls who are fans of his, who are going through all sorts of things, especially now in the pandemic and, you know, and bullying and cyberbullying, all these things that are plaguing our youth to have a, a, a sports icon in a major city say, this is okay. This is normal. You know, let's talk about it. Let's be open about it. Because you know what happens when people aren't open about their mental illness? What happens is what happened to Dak's brother because they feel they can't talk about it. So it is disgusting. And what's even more disgusting is that he's doubling down on the comments. And uh, he's saying we're misconstruing his comments. Okay. Um, you know, that, that's really all I have to say about that. Yeah, I agree, Dean. And, you know, I'm shocked by the lack of sympathy and empathy that Skip Bayless showed. And I'm shocked because for those who do not follow Skip Bayless or listen to him often, he is an advocate for a lot of the things that we all share and believe in. Skip Bayless was at the forefront of Black Lives Matters. When Colin Kaepernick took a knee, Skip Bayless had his back and talked about the importance of doing so. He's advocated for, he has been a huge advocate for equality, not just racial equality, but LGBTQ rights. So I'm shocked, but I'm more disappointed knowing that this is not the Skip Bayless that I think most people have come to respect in the industry. You know, part of this job that he has is to kind of be a shock jock. If you've never watched Undisputed, it's similar to what we're doing for politics, but for sports. You know, they're reacting to news or reacting to things that are going on. And I understand how easy it is to have something misconstrued. But the fact that he, when asked about it and when, when he was criticized about this, doubled down on it shows that he still doesn't really grasp the concept fully. And again, for someone who has been so consistent with advocating for important issues like Black Lives Matters, like gender equality, it's really sad and shocking to see him make these comments and then not to apologize for them. And, you know, I saw that Fox Sports and, and the network put out a statement with their support for Dak and his mental health and his mental illness 
struggles that he's going through. Um, but obviously the fact that Skip made this mistake and Hey, we all make mistakes. It happens. Uh, yeah, we do. There, there are plenty of times where Dean or I will say something and we'll go back and listen to it. And we think to ourselves, man, that did not come out the way we intended it to be. I get that. But just the fact that he won't ap- apologize for it to me is alarming. And again, I'm just so shocked considering his past history. Yeah. And listen, I think it's, um, I think we also have to to consider the fact um and this is definitely not a defense of, of Skip, because if you just listen to what I think about it and what Vince thinks about it, you know, we completely reject um, his statements adamantly. But it is a generational difference. I think I think a lot of older Americans like Skip feel that way about mental illness, and that's part of the problem. Um, I think that's why so many older, especially white males in this country are committing suicide because it's that thought process. It's the idea that if I open up about what's going inside my mind, that I'm weak and that I'm not strong. And that means I'm not a man and it's dangerous. It's dangerous rhetoric and it has to change. Um, and I don't know if it'll ever change for Skip, um, but it's going to change because we do have people like Dak Prescott, uh, Michael Phelps uh, in the sports world are coming, you know, Michael Phelps coming to my mind uh, right away that are saying, no, listen, we, we have to talk about these things. Um, we just have to. And I think you're right. You know, it doesn't, def- it's no defense of what Skip said, but I think it is generational. I think they look at it as a sign of weakness. I think a lot of people in older generations also look at depression as a lack of work ethic or a lack of effort as an excuse for why you can't do something. And though I think science and a lot of the younger people in this country have under understand the severity that depression and anxiety has on people, um, there are some who still just don't get it. And I I think it is generational. uh, But like you said, Dean, it doesn't, it doesn't justify what Skip said. And I think instead of us just focusing on what Skip said, I think that as a society, it's important that we condemn it, but we need to, we need to put our focus on what Dak said. Because I think what he said about his struggles with mental health are important. More people need to hear that message that it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how successful you are. People struggle with mental health issues when major things happen. Uh, and all of us struggle differently. And it's not weakness. And it's not something you should be ashamed of or feel that you're any less of a person because you struggle with it. And don't forget, we can all help prevent suicide. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline provides 24-7 free and confidential support for people in distress and prevention and crisis resources for you and your loved ones. If you or anyone you know is suffering, please call 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. This week's main event topic is the Biden coalition. We are less than two months away from the election and the first presidential debate is just around the corner. When we look at Joe Biden's path to victory in November, what does that coalition of voters look like? Dean, I find this to be a fascinating topic 
I think generally speaking, Joe is looking to tap into the same coalition as Obama. However, I think Biden's coalition will ultimately have to be different for him to win. From my perspective, the Biden team is going to need to be able to rely heavily on moderates, former Republicans, and suburban women to be able to win this election in November. You know, yes, I think he will need a strong turnout from our base, which is, you know, young people and minority voters. But I think for Joe to really overcome the electoral disadvantage that Democrats face, that he will need to bring in new voters, such as former Republicans. So, Dean, when you look at this election, what type of coalition do you think Joe Biden will need to ultimately win in November? And do you think his current coalition is broad enough? So as of right now, um, you know, his his coalition is what his coalition is. Uh, It's quite clear um, after the convention um, that his campaign's focus is on moderate voters and on the idea that we are going to be able to peel away former Republicans uh, and will those former Republicans will, will in turn support Joe Biden. Um, that's, that's the road he's, he's taken. Um, and I get that. Um, but my concern with that particular road is I think it leaves a lot of our more liberal voters um, standing outside and, and they're feeling that, hey, why is there so much attention, time, and money being focused on what I also believe is this false hope of the former Republicans switching sides and um, growing a conscience all of a sudden and supporting Joe Biden? Why is there so much focus on that? And why isn't there more of a focus on? campaigning with um, and embracing, if she's willing, one of our party's biggest stars, and that's AOC. And I think Bernie the other day uh, mentioned the same thing. You know, he, he agrees with Joe Biden's uh, fundamental uh, strategy. Uh, I think, if, if I'm reading between the lines, I don't think he's really arguing against against the overall structure of Biden's campaign, but he does raise some, some very valid points that Joe Biden should be talking more about how he supports raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, how we're gonna create green jobs of the future, how we're gonna raise taxes on on corporate America, albeit it's it's not a lot, but it's better than what we're currently seeing. And by focusing on those those policy ideas, it's my belief, it could be wrong, that in turn, the coalition will broaden because you're gonna have more liberal voters believe that, you know, Joe Biden's whole campaign isn't being um, beholden to moderates and former Republicans. Um, and again, it, my fear is, and it has always been, that 
we as a party need to present a clear message of what we're for, not just who we're against. Vince and I had many discussions about this, about the, you know, the 2016 election. And I, I do believe that was our fundamental mistake back then. And I just fear we're doing the same thing. It's not going to be enough to just point out how awful Donald Trump is and hope we can scare enough moderates and, and former Republicans into, into thinking, you know what, Biden's my guy. He's a good guy. He's an empathetic guy. Um, he's genuine, which all those things are true. But if we don't present the American people as, you know, uh, if we don't present the American population with real policy alternatives that will result in real economic changes in their lives, I, I do fear we're going we're gonna to fall short again because we win as a party when our voters are excited about supporting our candidate and what our candidate is fighting for. That's when we do, that's when we do best. That's when we saw record turnout. When our party struggles, especially in terms of turnout, it's when we present, again, the American people this, this choice, this choice of good versus evil, dark versus light. Will that messaging be enough? Is that enough of a difference uh, to make sure that we, we win the election? I really hope it is. And to be fair, the Biden campaign and his and his manager, they've been right along the way, right? He is our nominee. We all counted him out, or at least I did, and he's still standing. So they do deserve the benefit of the doubt, and I hope I'm wrong. Um, but it ju it's just bringing back bad memories, if you understand what I'm saying, Vince. Dean, I understand your concern. I understand Bernie Sanders' concern when it comes to wanting to focus this election back on the, the kitchen table issues, right? Wanting to focus this election back on what we can do as a party and what Joe Biden can do as a nominee to make things better for Americans, especially economically. However, I think when you look at the path the Biden campaign has went down, when you look at the coalition that they're trying to build, it is a different coalition than maybe Bernie or the far left would want them to build. And, you know, the, his coalition is what it's going to be. And like you said, Dean, when you looked at the DNC and a whole night committed to independents and former Republicans, they are banking heavy on that voting block to turn out for them in a way that other Democrats have been unable to make it happen, right? No other Democratic nominees have ever courted the other side the way the Biden campaign is trying to court them. And there's a reason Biden's doing it. And let's be honest, when you're looking at public opinion polling, Biden is leading with independence. He's leading with seniors. That's something Barack Obama never did. He didn't do it in 2008, and he didn't do it in 2012. You know, you look at a recent Military Times poll that shows Joe Biden winning among active military members. And the reason for this is because, yes, Joe Biden is doing a lot to try to court these voters to become part of this very, very broad coalition that he's trying to build. But I think it's also because 
Donald Trump's the most disastrous president in U.S. history. And you look at recent news stories from The Atlantic, where Trump referred to veterans as suckers and losers, or even Bob Woodward's interview with Trump, where he admitted that he downplayed the coronavirus on purpose. Trump has made a political climate where the Biden campaign is making a very calculated tactic and a very calculated move that they can win over these voters. And let's face it, if he does win over these voters, these independents, and he ends up winning seniors, this will be the most broad coalition that anyone has ever had. More broad than what Barack Obama built in 2008 and 2012. But I think because of how broad this coalition is going to be, it's very difficult to pull off. It is going to be tough to keep your base energized, like the far left, but also keep those former Republicans in the fold. Also went over independence. It's not, there's a reason that most candidates don't go down this route because it's a very complex situation. And you're going to have to try to bring a lot of people together who don't agree and focus them on one common goal, which is going to be to defeat Donald Trump. And I have argued, and so have Eugene on this podcast before, that I question whether not being Donald Trump is enough, right? Is that enough to really win election? John Kerry tried to be not George W. Bush. It was not enough in the end. However, I think this election is a little bit different. I think when you look at the favorabilities between George W. Bush and Donald Trump, Donald Trump would do anything to have Bush's favorability ranking ratings at this point. Uh, they're completely different. Additionally, I think that this idea that Biden cannot win without a major policy initiative. Uh, This is where Dean and I, and I think the far left and the moderate base of our party, and even the different campaigns are kind of argued about this idea. Like, what what does it take to win? Do you need a policy initiative to win? And a lot on the left would argue, yes, you need to be able, and that's what Bernie's arguing, right? That's what Dean's arguing, that you got to be able to say, hey, I'm running on a $15 minimum wage, right? And let's be honest, if you talk to most Biden supporters, I don't know if they even know that, like he is running on a very progressive platform, and that he should take this platform and go to the American people with and say, yes, I'm not Donald Trump, but I'm more than that. And I I give some credence to that. But I what I disagree with, and what I disagree with it with me in the past, and, uh, and even have my own internal battles, I do think that you can win on this idea of dark versus light. And, and, And I'll tell you why, because when you look at 2008 with Barack Obama, with the energy that was behind Barack Obama. He won not on policy. He won because of hope. Barack Obama ran on a progressive platform for the time, but compared to now, not progressive at all, right? He won because he was going to give you hope. It was change we could believe in. He signified this coming of age that America needed to have. It was the moment, and he rose to it, right? When you look at Donald Trump, he ran on Make America Great Again. Yes, build the wall. There was other policy initiatives. But to be honest with you, and I'm not trying to be demeaning, but most of his base can't even spell the word policy. Like, they don't care about policy initiatives. It was make America great again and go back to the way it used to be, the good old days, right? That's what he, he ran on. Even this current election, it didn't make a lot of news. It should have. But if policy was so important, Donald Trump literally had no policy initiative at the GOP convention. They did not have any initiative. They didn't talk about policy. It was make America great again, again. Like that was the literally the whole message from the Republican convention. So he's not running on policy. So yes, I agree that you need to, yes, I agree that having something that people can latch onto is important and policy can definitely be that vehicle to get them excited to vote for you. And I think for many of our friends on 
the far left uh, and the more left side of our party, having a more progressive platform would energize them and get them excited to vote. And then hopefully that translates into more enthusiasm. But I don't think it's fair to say that he can't win based on the path which he is going, which is right now at this point, leadership matters, empathy matters, the chaos has to end, it's time for a change. And that's what he's running on, right? It's light versus dark, it's good versus bad. And yes, Hillary Clinton lost trying to do the same thing, but I would argue her situation, it's all the fundamentals, right? Her situation was a lot different. We had just got done eight years of the hope and change guy. Hillary Clinton was largely very much unfavorable. She never had good favorability ratings. The people who disliked both candidates ended up flocking to Donald Trump. So it was a different election and a different situation. Now Trump's been in office for four years. It's been disastrous. He's destroyed everything he's touched. He's running on, and he has to now run on a message of make America great again, again. So I think now that argument of we've seen what this gets us, we gave this a shot, we can't go, we can't keep doing this, America's in chaos, we need real leadership, that message can really work. Um, yeah, so Vince, I do, I, I understand what you're saying, and I have those same internal <laughs> dialogues myself. Um, do Americans really care about policy? Will it make a difference? Um, you know, and just to play devil's advocate with you and, and quite frankly, myself, um, I don't know if it's really fair to use the fact that Trump is not running on policy as a reason why it's not important for Biden to not run on policy. I think for his base, policy is already baked in. It's part of the package. He doesn't have to talk about policy. Um, he represents the policy of build the wall and, and let's get rid of the Im immigrants and cut regulation and climate change is a hoax. All of those policy ideas are, are so in, embedded within the Republican Party right now. It goes without saying. So I think we do have a responsibility as a party to counter to, to point out to the American people that it does make a difference to that, hey, you know what? This isn't true. This isn't right. That's just, that's just a lie. And then counter with our policy ideas based off of facts and science and data. Because if we don't, it kind of feels like we're just conceding those. Like we're just conceding the idea that cutting regulation is good for the economy. We're, or we're just conceding, again, the, what we were talking about in the initial segment on how fighting climate change is bad for the economy or that building the wall is an effective way to enforce immigration in this country. Like we do need to confront those, those ideas head on. And I think Bernie's right. I think Biden has a, has a responsibility to do so. Um, and in doing so, hopefully, and this is a big if, you know, I, I get it, you know, hopefully more younger voters and more liberal voters will be more enticed to vote for him in 2020. And I guess what I'm saying, this inner dialogue 
with myself and, and playing devil's advocate and kind of agreeing with what Vince is saying is that maybe maybe right now is not the time to rock the boat. You know, maybe Donald Trump is so awful and so inept that it's it just isn't the time to push out transformational policy ideas and agendas. You, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, so that I get, and that's why I do struggle. I, I struggle with this as well. And I think when you look at the coalition the way it is now, I mean, it is very broad. It is a very diverse coalition, not the way we typically think of diversity, right? This is a mixture of older white senior voters, suburban moms, minorities like this is a very diverse coalition and not a normal coalition that democrats went on you know former republicans independents my question to you would be and my question to the people on the far left and even to bernie how do you push how do you run on maybe more of these kitchen table issues that he wants biden to bring up embrace people that are rock stars in our party like aoc i don't think either Either Dean or I would argue that AOC is not a rock star. She is. She is one of the most exciting people in our party. Um, and she would definitely energize the base. But how do you do it in a way that still does not alienate that new coalition that you're going to run on? Because I think it's way too late now to try to change the coalition at the last minute. And also polls are showing that Joe's winning with this coalition. Now, whether it's enough in the end, I don't know. But how do you start, you know, how do you bring about these issues in a way that is not going to alienate that moderate um, in Pennsylvania or that former Republican in Ohio? Yeah, and I think, I don't know how many times I've said it during the podcast, but I really do hate it when you're right. Uh, (laughs) But I I think you are. I think, um, I think it is too late at this point for, you know, any additional major policy changes you know but i think what bernie's getting it at is that biden has already announced these policies right he's already said this is what i'm going to fight for um and he's just not bringing it up what i what i believe you know and and i'm going to give biden the benefit of the doubt is listen this is politics this is a game so too often we conflate what a candidate says or doesn't say on the trail with who they are or who they are or aren't going to be once in office. Joe Biden is a very savvy politician. And I think, and this is just a theory, he is looking at the chessboard and he sees that he's awfully close. And why make a sudden risky move at this point in, in, in the game. And once he wins, it's up to us to hold his feet to the fire and say, hey, listen, these are the policy agendas that you signed on onto. This is why Bernie Sanders said you will be the most liberal president since FDR. We're the goods. But that comes after he wins. He has to win first. And I, I think he is playing a game and, and not in a bad way and not in some kind of like Machiavellian way, but just a realistic way that he doesn't want to alienate so many of these moderate voters that are on board with him right now. 
I think you're right. And I think it is a large part strategy, right? If you're winning, you don't, you don't change what got you there. I, I know we always use sports analogies and probably some people hate it, but it's like if, in football, if you are winning the game by running the ball consistently and it's the fourth quarter, are you, why, why would you stop running the ball? Like that's what got you there. You're going to keep on doing what has consistently been working. And for the most part, based on public opinion polling, Joe Biden's winning. So I think when you look at his coalition that he has built, he's put a lot of time into courting those moderates and those independents. So I don't think that he's going to try to bring someone like AOC in and campaign with her. I think that he should, however, try to get her to be part of the campaign more than she is now because the convention was odd. It was odd the fact that she was brought in to talk uh, for Bernie uh, and she, she had no other part other than that. It, it, it was very obvious that Bernie wanted her to be part of it, wanted to bring her in. And the Biden campaign, I think, was a little bit reserved about using her for any other purpose. And I get it. I understand it. There's baggage that comes along with her. However, I think it is a smart strategy on their part. They can still have her be do, they can still have her get out the vote for young people. They can have her on, you know, Instagram lives and, and TikToks and social media really campaigning for them, maybe a little bit of a distance, but getting people energized. And even if it's not, hey, you need to vote for Joe Biden, it can simply just be, hey, Donald Trump is a disaster. Donald Trump is a threat to America. Get out and vote. We need change desperately now. She doesn't even need to say the words Joe Biden or Donald Trump to tell people what to do. Like she can make that message very articulately and she's done it her whole career. So I think that, you know, hopefully the Biden campaign will bring her in. But I agree, it's a strategy and you can't change the strategy now. The coalition is what it is. And let's and if we lose those independent, moderates, white suburban voters, we are in trouble come November because the math is not there, right? The Biden coalition, exactly the way it was in 2008 and 2012, that coalition is not going to be enough to get us over the finish line. It wasn't enough for Hillary either. I think the pause for concern and where you might see a little bit of a move to get out the vote is over the next month, especially if the Biden campaign continues to see tightening in states like Florida, North Carolina, a lot of these swing states are tightening and that's expected. But I think what is a little bit concerning Washington Post put out a great article about how much the Biden campaign was spending on fundraising compared to the Republicans. And actually, Republican operatives are really concerned about the fact that the Biden campaign has basically been just completely um, blanketing the airwaves. You know, for those who don't know or don't remember, uh, the Trump campaign's a little bit in a tight cash situation. They wasted a lot of money. Um, the Washington Post reported that that was largely due to Brad Parscale's uh, interesting spending habits, including, uh, you know, paying for his Ferrari, uh, you know, putting a million dollars worth of ads in Washington, D.C. market, because even though that's not a competitive market for Donald Trump, um, Trump doesn't like seeing negative ads about himself. It gets him angry. So it was a way for them to keep him not angry. They made a lot of head scratching decisions with the way they spent their money. And they had a huge war chest advantage and cash on hand advantage compared to the Biden campaign. Well, August happened and Biden broke the camp and Biden and the Biden campaign broke a record for fundraising. And now the Biden campaign is flush with cash and the Trump campaign is trying to tighten everything as much as they can. So because of that, in most of August and now into September, you look at the TV ad uh, spending the Biden can, can the Biden campaign spent about 90 million on TV ads, which is about four times more than the Trump campaign has spent, which is about 18 million. 
So when you see how much we're spending on ads and marketing, we should be up and we should continue to hopefully see uh, a greater impact from these ads. That being said, if the polls continue to tighten and we're not seeing a return on investment, that's where I think that the Biden campaign might have to be very strategic and maybe making some last minute changes to make sure to make sure that we have enough to cross the finish line in November. Especially considering the fact that when you look at when you look at the ground game between the two campaigns, it is a very stark contrast. The Trump campaign actually has spent a lot of money on building a physical ground team in these battleground states. The Biden team, not so much. Uh, and this was very evident during the primary. Um, you know, Joe Biden did not have the campaign offices that Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, or you know, Better O'Rourke or Pete Buttigieg had in the primaries. Uh, the Biden campaign very rarely ever had uh, any offices because they didn't have the funding to have them. So it's not a surprise that the Biden team hasn't necessarily invested in putting in offices in all these different states to the level that the Trump campaign has. Additionally, the Biden campaign has become very tech savvy. That's one thing that's been very evident from the Democratic National Convention, right? This is not a normal election. We're in a pandemic. And because of that, the Biden campaign has transitioned to a more digital-based, get-out-the-vote ground game. Whereas the Trump campaign is sticking true to the door-knocking, old-school, have-physical offices. I think the Trump campaign announced this week that over they knocked on over a million doors in swing states talking to voters. Now, obviously, that part of that is a difference on the belief of how we handle COVID. Obviously, the Trump campaign, uh, for the most part, believes COVID is a hoax. Uh, or maybe that's just him downplaying. It's tough to tell sometimes. Um, but obviously, COVID is not a very big priority for them. And the Biden campaign is concerned about, you know, the face-to-face -face engagement with voters and how that might continue, that, how that might increase the spread. So, you know, there are a lot of variables that are that could possibly change over the next two months. And I think if those variables change, the Biden campaign might have to adjust accordingly. But they have not. But throughout this whole election, they've shown that they have a game plan and they plan to stick to it. And I think they're all in on their coalition. And I don't think um, that's going to change. Now, I think what is worth trying to figure out is how do we make sure we maximize the coalition that he's already built, right? How do we make sure that we have African-American turnout at the levels that Obama had? How do we try to turn out Hispanics the way Hillary Clinton was able to turn out Hispanics? And how do we do all of that uh, and it, while still being the first Democratic nominee in history to win independence? It's a large, it's a complex issue, right? It, it's not as simple as just bring out AOC. How do you do all that? And, and, and how do you accomplish it without alienating the current coalition that you built? Yeah, it, it seems to be like a, a buckshot coalition they're going after everybody right and they're just hoping hoping they hit all their targets um and just to backtrack you know to the to the one million doors that the trump campaign claims they've they've knocked on one i really don't believe it because i don't believe anything that comes out of the trump campaign or the republican party I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to appease uh, their supporters and to convince them that don't worry about the polls. Don't worry about how much Biden has and how little money Trump has. Don't worry about that. We're knocking on doors. We're doing it the old school way. 
Uh, everything is, is just fine. And that's what they're trying to do. Uh, so I'm not really overly concerned about it. And Dean, I think it's also important to remember that, you know, Hillary Clinton, you know, you talk about ground game and, and cash on hand. Hillary Clinton had a big advantage in both of those. And that, des- and that obviously didn't change the dynamic of the election. In the end, Donald Trump lost the popular vote, but he won in the states that mattered and he won the Electoral College. So, you know, I think when it comes to ground game and how many doors you knock on, I think the Biden campaign has a plan. They have a strategy that they're going to use and they're going to go with that strategy. And, you know, when it comes to policies or anything else with the Biden campaign, Joe Biden is who Joe Biden is. And he's going to, and he's going to be unapologetically Joe Biden. And that is someone, and, and that's not going to change. And I don't think it should, right? That's what got him here was being who he was and not listening to what every political pundit has said. Um, and I think unless you see the polls drastically swing, there's not going to be a change. And frankly, at this point in the election, would it even matter? Like, right? Like we're so, we're so close. We are two months away and it's hard to believe it, but we are two months away from uh, voting. This, this from voting. And if you don't know who you're voting for at this point, you know, it's just... And I think, and that's what we're seeing in polls too, right? Most people know, like, I think every poll we look at, the margins will go up and down. And I think that's obviously polling error, uh, which is expected. Um, you know, these polls usually have a margin of error of three to four points. And so when you see them change a little bit here and there, that's been pretty consistent. Um, but Nate Silver recently pointed out that, you know, Joe Biden's lead has been one of the most consistent ever. Like it has not really changed. And I think a large part of that is when you break down these polls, everyone knows who they're voting for. Like, you know, and there aren't that many undecided voters and even, you know, so it's not like I think there's going to be any major swings. We do have the debates coming up that could change the game a little bit, but even that I don't know is enough to change. We keep saying it. We got to turn out. We got to vote. We got to fill out the ballots. It's all, you know. Yeah. And I think that, you know, my kind of feeling on this is that our coalition is going to be what it's going to be. He's got to turn out the independents. He's got to turn out the moderate Republicans who have decided to vote for Biden. He's got to turn out the far left Bernie Sanders AOC base. He's got to turn out uh, the African-American base, the Latino base. He's got a lot of work on his hands to do it. But if anyone can do it, Joe Biden can. And he's shown that throughout, uh, the, throughout this campaign. You know, everyone has counted him out at some point, including myself and including you. Right. So we've all done it. And the Biden campaign keeps on ticking along and they tend to have the last laugh every time. And let's hope that continues. Um, but I think it is unfair a lot of times when when people look at this current coalition that Biden's built. I, I think we don't give it enough credit for being as broad as it is. And I think it's a I think it's a mistake for people to keep on comparing this election to 2016. And because the fundamentals are different. The, the base is different. And I understand it. A lot of Democrats, myself and Dean included, we have, you know, a little PTSD from 2016, right? We're, we're fearful that, you know, Hillary Clinton had a lead in September and she lost it. Now, I will like to point out to everyone, I think her lead, Nate Silver talked about this today, her lead in the beginning of September was like 1.2 percentage points. Like it wasn't very high. She got a bigger lead due to the infamous tapes that came out about Donald Trump where he uh, bragged about sexually assaulting women um, as a celebrity because they let you do it. Uh, according to him. And and those tapes obviously hurt him a lot. But then right after that, the Comey situation happened and it completely flipped. And in the end, Hillary wins by three points, but it wasn't enough. Um, I don't think that's going to happen this time around. And I think also when you look at the polls, you know, Hillary had that one to 2% lead nationally at this time, but there were still a lot of people who are undecided. 
like we said, people aren't undecided now. They know who they're voting for. And, uh, you know, at this point, it's, it's just a matter of who's turning out the vote and making sure we get our people's our people to the polls. And that's always the battle, right? Um, and that will be interesting to see whether the Biden's bet on a virtual solution for that is going to be enough. That's maybe where I have, you know, a little more concern. Uh, but again, I, I think they've, they've earned the right at this point for me to trust them. No, I mean, listen, um, it is fair for us to have some PTSD uh, after 2016. Um, and like you said, this is a very different election. Um, but to me, what's most important is it's a different candidate. Um, I'm not saying it's necessarily fair. You know, when you compare Hillary Clinton's favorability ratings uh, to Joe Biden, um, they're night and day. Joe Biden is more likable. And there are a whole bunch of reasons explaining why that may be the case. Uh, I do uh, I do understand that. Uh, but this is a very different candidate. Um, and it's in a different it's a different election and we're in a different time. And we we just have to we just have to turn out. It, you know, it just comes down to that. Talk to your family members, talk to your friends, make sure, please make sure that they're registered and that they're going to vote. And that they have a plan to vote too. That's the other big thing, right? With COVID, have a plan, an action plan to vote. If you're not comfortable going to the polls, you're not prepared to wait in lines, have a plan of how you're going to get that ballot in. Have a plan because you know what? The other side has a plan. They don't care. They don't care about COVID. They're voting. So have a plan because you know what? All of the tweets, all of the the um, the rallies, all of the protests, all of the hearings, it'll all be for nothing. For nothing. This is our moment. This is our time to show the world that we do not support Donald Trump. Donald Trump does not represent our country and it's time for him to get out of the White House. And that is it for this episode of the Left and Lefter podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure to share this episode with your family and friends. We would greatly appreciate it. Until next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Left and Lefter podcast. Join the Left and Lefter community at leftandlefter.com and follow us on Twitter at Left and Lefter. Thank you.